The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Our uh, speaker for this morning is my brother, Dave Lee, and he's pastor at Harvest Community Church. I had kind of a longer introduction I wanted to share, but I think we're a little short on time. So all I'll say is you've seen him probably in the pictures I've shown of him and me together in our different stages growing up. And uh, as I shared, he's always a little taller than me, but in truth, he's a little shorter than me. So you'll see that when he comes to speak today. But uh, he's, a, he's not just a brother, but he's a dear friend of mine. And uh, one of the things I treasure most about coming from Africa back to the States is God opening up this opportunity for us to do ministry together through this Thrive Network. So without any further delay, let me invite Pastor Dave to come forward and uh, share God's word with us. Let's welcome him. Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm really grateful to have been invited, and I acknowledge that there's a bunch of kids in the room with us, so I want to just start with a word to the kids. I know that we're calling this ICC's 10th anniversary. That's a big word usually you associate with mom and dad celebrating the day they got married. Really, I think what we're talking about is today is ICC's 10th birthday. Because what we're celebrating is that it's been 10 years since God gave birth to this church called ICC. And I want you to think about why we look forward to birthdays. I mean, how many of you guys look forward to your birthday every year? And what do you love about birthdays? You're like... Friends, parties, really if we're talking about the truth, it's presents. You like presents, right? But I want to tell you one thing you want to do each party, each birthday that you have, is I want you to take a moment and think about all the ways that God has been so good to you in the last year. And each birthday, I think it's important to just pause and say thank you to God for his amazing faithfulness. And I also want you to think about it each birthday that what you're celebrating is that you're a year older. And as God gives more to you, he expects more from you. And just pause and think about this. How many of you kids who are second grade and older still use a sippy cup? Anybody? I always thought it'd be cool to still have a sippy cup. It seems like a very convenient way not to spill my drink. But when you get to a certain age, you leave behind childish things and you accept that as I get older, I need to act older. And I think that's no less true of us as a church. And so as ICC celebrates its 10th birthday, we want to think about all the ways God wants to grow this church as a a community. And I want you kids to join with the adults in saying really that what we're celebrating is God has been so good to this church. Aren't you glad you have this church and not some boring church with no friends? Aren't you glad you don't come to harvest? And so I just want to acknowledge that you guys are in the room. Some of this may be a little over your head, but I want you to sit still and really think about what God is doing here at ICC this morning. And I want to thank you for inviting me to speak at your 10th anniversary. It's a great honor. It's been our joy to watch ICC grow over the years. Um, When we started out together, Harvest felt much bigger than ICC, and now you guys are about to pass us up. And it's been a real joy to see that God is at work, not just in growing in size, but there is a fire happening here 
I, I know your, your logo, the eye is supposed to look like a flame. It always reminded me of a necktie. Um, I, every time I see this, all I think about is how come no one wears ties here? But I, I really do appreciate what I hear and what I, I experience whenever I'm with you guys. God is at work in this church. Would you agree? And so I really wrestled with what do I say to this church as you mark your 10th birthday or your 10th anniversary? And then one morning as I was praying in preparation for this day, it just came to me, what if I took the series that, on, that I preached on the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Revelation 2 to 3 and put them together into something like a letter that if Jesus were to write a letter to your church as you celebrate 10 years together, what would be some things on the heart of Christ for your church that he would want to say to you? And I couldn't shake that this is really what God wants me to say, but it's foolish for me because I've got 30 minutes and I'm trying to give you a seven-point message. So I'm going to blow through these seven points, <laughs> trusting that so much is going to be left out. I mean, trust me, I'm, there's like 80 pages left on the cutting room floor, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to really grab your heart with at least something that He really wants to say to you as a church and that the Spirit will say more to you than I will say and I want you to know that it's not irrelevant or inappropriate for us to use these letters as addressing the whole church. Because though he wrote seven letters to seven churches, they were put together in one document and they were passed around from church to church so that every church read each other's mail. And at the end of every single one of these letters is one same statement at the end of each letter. It says, hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. And the idea here is that though he's writing a specific letter to a specific church, what he's saying to each church is important for every church to hear as reflecting the heart of Jesus Christ for his bride, the church, in every place, in every setting. So I want to share with you, and I started with six because I, know, I had a feeling I'm going to run out of time. If we have time, I'll give you the seventh one. How's that? We'll just see how it goes. I want to share seven things, maybe six, that Jesus wants to say to ICC on your 10th birthday. The first is, whoa, never lose your first love. The church at Ephesus was planted by Paul with his friends Priscilla and Aquila. And they worshipped Jesus Christ in a city dominated by the worship of the goddess Artemis in the Roman version Diana. And her influence cast a huge shadow over the whole city. And yet despite this predominant religion in the city... The church that they planted there endured for 50 years and continued to grow. And in fact, it became an anchor church in Asia Minor and was one of those large established churches that if they were around today, they would be the, the trendsetters, the pace setters. These would be the guys holding conferences and writing books and leading innovation in the church. And the church in Ephesus really was a successful church by many measures, and they were growing large, growing influentially. They were strong in so many ways. And yet surprisingly, at the end of his praise for this church, Jesus has this to say to the church. Yet I hold this thing, this one thing against you. You have forsaken the first love you had at first. The church at Ephesus received some of the strongest praises from Jesus in all the seven letters. And yet the one thing he says to them is, despite all the things you've done well, the thing that breaks my heart when I look at your church 
is that you've lost that first love. Now, I'm not saying ICC has lost its first love. Please don't misunderstand me. I think the first love for Jesus is growing at this church. Thank God for that every day. And do everything in your power not to forsake and lose that first love. I was thinking about a conversation I had with a Juilliard violinist about 25 years ago. And uh, I remember that conversation haunted me because I listened to her perform at church. I said, my goodness, you are an amazing musician. It must be such a joy. I picture you just at home playing all day long to please yourself. And she said, oh my gosh, no. I hate the violin. And in fact, I actually hate music. And I was shocked by this because she had risen to the top of her skill. She had made it to the very pinnacle of playing the violin. And her testimony was, I hate music. And I thought, what a tragedy to be so wildly successful at something and have lost completely the heart of what makes it great. I think it's possible to build an amazing church and lose your first love for Jesus, the one for whom the church exists. I think that we, we in America see examples of it everywhere we look. And in fact, some of the churches setting the pace for the church in America are in that very place right now. And so I think if Jesus were to write a letter to ICC, one of the things he would say to you is, where you are right now in your love for me, grow in it and never lose that. As you continue to become more successful by the worldly measures of success, it will become so much more important you hang on to this first love he gave you. It's the second thing that I believe Jesus would say to you. Honor God when you suffer. You know, the church in Smyrna was a beautiful, beautiful port city. In fact, many consider Smyrna to have been the most beautiful city in all of Asia at the time. It was filled with wealth and successful businesses, but despite all of that, the church in Smyrna was a suffering church. It was on the brink of extinction, and Jesus wrote to this church at a very, very difficult time in their life. And I know that, that you guys as a church have been through some hard times. We also have been through some hard times. No church gets to 10 or 20 years old without some struggle. But I really think that the kind of, of struggle, the suffering that the church in Smyrna was experiencing, it was unlike anything we've experienced yet in ICC or Harvest history. But I am convinced that days are coming when we're going to begin to experience that kind of struggle as a church. The truth was the church in Smyrna could have avoided a lot of their suffering if they just made a few small compromises. And those compromises could easily have been justified, but they refused to make any compromise at all, and it cost them so much suffering because they stayed faithful to Jesus. And there's a lot of things he says to them, but here's one of the things he says to them is, I know what you've been through, but he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days, and you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I share these words because I think being a Christian in America is going to get steadily harder and harder in the years ahead. 
I've been trying to prepare our church and my children for this. I say to them on a regular basis, the world you live in is going to be very different than the world I grew up in. And I think we're living in the tail end of the dominance of the church in this country. We presume a lot of things that if you have a successful program and a nice building and a great speaker, you're going to draw people. But I think our country is becoming more and more hostile to Jesus and to the church and to the Christian faith. Young adults are leaving the church at a rate of 1,000 per day in our country. 60% of millennials who grew up in the church have left the church. And a full 30% of millennials across America are anti-church and believe that the church has nothing positive to offer the world. And these are the young adults who will be running this country in just a few short years and commanding the largest transfer of wealth that we've ever seen in human history. What it means to be a Christian in America is going to radically change in the next 20 years. And I don't think I'm a prophet. I just, I think I have eyeballs and a brain to see what's happening. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think it's going to be nearly as pleasant or easy as it's been for years to follow Jesus in this country. I think it won't just be a private, personal struggle. I think we will struggle together to honor Jesus in an increasingly hostile world. And if those days strike us, I want to encourage you and challenge you as a church, prepare your hearts now for those days so that you will remain faithful to Jesus when suffering comes. Because I think that day is coming. There's a third thing that I believe Jesus would say. And that is, guard your flanks. All seven churches Jesus wrote letters to served him and followed him in hostile environments, but probably none of the churches was in a rougher environment than the church in Pergamum. In fact, twice in his letter, Jesus calls Pergamum the city where Satan lives. How would you like to have your city be like, oh yeah, there's a lot of cities where yours is the one Satan moved into and built a house. It's where Satan lives. It was, in fact, the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia. And uh, I'm having a little trouble advancing this slide. There we go. It's the capital city of, 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 of the Roman Empire in Asia. It was a huge city, very beautiful, and it was ground zero for emperor worship of, of the Roman Emperor Caesar in all of Asia Minor. As well, the people in this city believed themselves to be the defenders of Greek culture and Greek religion throughout Asia. This is a recreation of the temple of, or the altar of Zeus in Berlin in a museum there. But it gives you an idea of the majesty, the, the scale of worship and the temples that, that existed throughout the city. And so the church in Pergamum was not just dealing in a neutral atmosphere, but in a city that was filled with rabid devotion to Rome and its emperor, as well as much, much um, strong feelings about Greek religion and Greek culture. And so this church was getting it from all sides, and there was growing uh, animosity, growing persecution towards the Christian movement in the city. History records that this persecution reached the climax at the martyrdom of a man named Antipas, which Jesus references in this letter. And tradition tells us the way he was martyred was, well, kids in the room, but... That's a diagram of this cruel device, a giant brass bowl into which he was inserted and slowly roasted. That's not a pleasant way to go. 
And yet despite this horrific suffering, Jesus says, I know that you have remained true to my name. But then he says after this, one thing that really woke me up, because this church endured and remained faithful in the midst of a full frontal assault from Satan. But then here is what he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, I don't have time to unpack all that that means, but let me break it down simply. This church endured a full frontal assault from Satan, but what began to unravel them was a very subtle attack of compromise from the flanks. This idea of the teaching of Balak was about moral compromise because they were up against so much opposition that some people were saying, this is a small thing, we know it's not the best thing in the world to do, but if we do it, we will get much more of a footing in this city, and we can do greater things if we're accepted by the other citizens. And so they were enticed to small compromises that would give them more of a voice in their city. And many followed that good advice, which was actually really bad advice. This idea of the teaching of the Nicolaitans was that slowly, bearing some echo of the truth, there were those who were leading people into theological compromise, saying, don't be so dogmatic about this or that truth. Truth is what we interpret it to be, and they began to teach a false teaching that began to really corrupt the hearts of the people. I, I'm not, this is not original to me, but I've heard these kinds of attacks called errorist attacks. You get the errorist attacks. This idea that just a small seed of false teaching begins to create real huge disruption in the life of the church. And I think this is true of a lot of churches we can handle the full frontal assault. When, when the enemy's coming at us in such obvious ways, and there are moral issues or social issues that are clearly white, uh, black or white, right or wrong, the church rallies and we know how to defend ourselves and our faith against the full frontal assault. But so often what sinks us is the, the attack that comes from the side, the thing we're not looking out for. I really believe the church in America we really have become better at recognizing the full frontal assault, but I think it's these little side attacks, those slow compromises that begin to unravel the church. I see it beginning with the youth and moving on to adults, and I want to encourage you and challenge you as a church, because so many armies have been defeated over the course of military history, not because they lost the battle coming from the front, but because they got flanked. And I want you to think about all the subtle ways that the enemy is trying to attack this church, not in the places where you're strong, but in the places where you're not being attentive. I think this church has endured a number of those things and has flourished and thrived in the midst of them. And I want to encourage you not to lower your guard on any front. Very often the thing that sinks the church in a generation comes from a place nobody is looking for the threat. It comes from a place where no one's thinking this is what's going to unravel the church in our country, in our culture, in our time. So I want to encourage you, and whenever someone raises the warning cry, be attentive and humble. Listen to what they may be saying. They may be the messenger of the Lord to warn us that while we're all facing the front, the enemy is coming at us from the side.
want to give you a fourth thing. This one I feel very passionate about is focus on the right kind of growth. The church in Thyatira, probably not pronouncing that correctly, was a really small city. I'm surprised it got a letter at all. It was by far the smallest of the seven cities that got a letter from Jesus. In fact, it was probably more of a village or a, a large suburb than a full-on city. It was a working-class city, and the people there were attacked on both sides by all kinds of persecution, but they really stood firm. And, and he has a few negative things to say, but I want to key in on one thing that Jesus said to this church that really stood out to me. What he commends them for is he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And listen to this phrase. And I see that now you are doing more than you did at first. What he means to say in that phrase is you are a church that isn't just healthy, you are growing. The things you are doing now represent progress, movement forward from when you started. I think that's a very reliable sign of life and health in a church or in a marriage or in a family or even in an individual is that if you're alive and growing, you are doing more than you did at first. That the things you're doing now represent a greater capacity, a greater maturity, a greater faithfulness and commitment than what you did at first. I remember a number of years ago when ICC and Harvest still shared a ministry center, somebody donated a ping pong table. And we weren't sure what we were going to do with it, but one day after lunch, when we were all kind of in food coma, the pastors decided to hit the ball around a little bit. And then the bug bit us, and we got hooked. And after a while, once a week, ping pong game turned into a daily kind of thing. And we started keeping score, the Harvest Pastors versus the ICC Pastors. Completely destroyed, you guys. I'm kidding. No, I think, I think they, they beat us at the end there, but... Here's one thing I noticed. As we fell in love more with it, we wanted to play a little more each day. And as we played a little bit more each day, one day we paused, and, and after a particularly great point, we kind of paused and said, oh my gosh, we've gotten really good at this game. <laughs> like when we all started, we were okay. But at the end, we're not like that scene in Forrest Gump. You know, we weren't like Chinese Olympic team good, but... We would have crushed anybody here among you. We, we got very good at ping pong at the height. We were investing in better equipment. We were stretching before we played all of it. And what I learned from that is, whatever you pursue, you grow in. And whatever you pursue reveals to you what you love and what you value, what you believe is truly important. Now, I believe there are a lot of churches in America that are growing. But the real question is, what are we growing in? If you look at the prevailing church culture in our country, we, we have what we call the ABCs of church growth, right? Have you heard of this? The A is attendance. That's an insane picture. That's a church in Houston called Lakewood. Pastor Joel Osteen, I think they have 90,000 members. They bought the Houston Rockets old arena and turned it into a church and they filled the place every Sunday. It's amazing to me. And then there's buildings. And just admit it. When you see that, you feel a little twinge of envy. Like, if we had a building like that, the things we could do. That's a church in Dallas. That's a small baby megachurch in Dallas. And then the C is cash. 
What could we do with a budget in the millions? All the good we could do with that. And right now in America, these are the three most reliable measures of church growth. is how many people are coming. What does your facility look like? And what is your budget? And it seems like that is what has obsessed the church in America. And that's how we measure whether we're growing or not. Outreach Magazine every year releases something called the, the Outreach 100 list. It's the list of the 100 fastest growing churches in America. And I guarantee you, they are not measuring spiritual growth. They're measuring the ABCs. As ICC faces the future, when you turn 10 years old as a church, it's inevitable your next thought is, what about the next 10 years? What are we going to be about? What's our vision? Where are we headed in the next 10 years? And I want to tell you, because we lived through it, at 10 years old, we had to think about what the next 10 years are going to look like, because our first 10 years, like your first 10 years, were marked by complete dependence on God, just this total hunger and, and humility, and we didn't know where, whether we were going to survive or not, and we were just so happy to make it to 10 years old. According to some sources, one out of every three church plants does not survive to see its fifth birthday. So just turning 10 years old was a major milestone for us, and it is for you. And at 10 years old, I remember having lots of prayer meetings and lots of board-level discussions about what we will be as a church. And at that moment, it was so hard to resist the rising tide of church culture and values in America. And I find that many people were saying, we're stable enough, we could go for it now, we could take it to the next level. But I was alarmed at what the next level meant to a lot of people. I know that where, our, where ICC is growing right now is in the area of prayer, of spirit-filled ministry. I really commend you for that. You are at a very pivotal point in your life cycle. This is a very important fork in the road for you as a church. Because you have now enough stability that you have more to lose than you ever did. And I remember what that felt like when we got to that point. I remember in the beginning we were going for broke because we had nothing. Everything was potential gain. Everything was the road ahead. And suddenly, we had a lot to lose. We were sitting on stable footing. Things were going very well. And I realized in that moment it was very easy to succumb to fear and worry about all the things we could break if we made a crazy decision that everybody didn't like. As you face your future, I think one of the things Jesus would say to you is grow. Grow like God is at work, but grow in the things that please the heart of Jesus more than anything else. I hope you will grow in all those things. Uh, you guys are already outgrowing this room. You need a bigger house, I think God is going to send you more people. Soon you're going to double us in size. And I think you're going to double us in budget. But I really hope that in the midst of all of that, the one thing that will never change about ICC is that Jesus will love this church. Be proud of this church. We'll be at home in this church. That his spirit will flourish in this place. And that the way you grow will always be the kind of growth that Jesus has in his heart for his bride. I'm going to run out of time here, so let me give you number five. Don't be satisfied with a good reputation. Could you click that next slide for me? Don't be satisfied with a good reputation. The church at Sardis received no affirmation or praise. 
It's the one church that got only a spanking. I'm not going to dwell long on this church because I don't think that's relevant to where you guys are as a church. But even so, there's something we can learn from this church. I don't know. How'd you like to be the one church? They all got each other's mail. So they're like, at least we're not Sardis. You guys probably say that about Harvest all the time, right? At least we're not Harvest. No, I'm kidding. But Sardis was the one church that Jesus had nothing kind to say. The thing that really jarred me when I read it was this, this verse right here, verse 3-2, and I'm going to take it out of the New Living Translation. I know all the things you do, and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Now, I don't know what they were doing, but I think they, along with everyone else, would have been shocked to read this letter and find that Sardis was the one that got the biggest spanking. Because it says, and Jesus acknowledges that you have a very good reputation. When people talk about the church at Sardis, what they say about you is, that's the church where the action is. That's the church that's hopping, where life is taking place. Where everybody walks in and out with a smile on their face. They're so welcoming. They're, you love everything there. The kids program is amazing. And everybody says that this is the church you want to go to. And yet what Jesus says is on the outside that must be very true. But what you don't realize when I look at your church is there is rot there. And you're dying and you don't know it yet. Every time somebody gets seriously sick, what do the doctors often say, Right? Had we caught it in time, we could have saved the person. But the disease took hold undetected for too long, and we found it way too late in the progress. I think that a good reputation can often mask serious spiritual decline. And so I, I, what I want to say to Harvest, what I, uh, to, to ICC, what I believe, probably that was a Freudian slip there, but what I think Jesus would also want to say to this church is where you are is a very good place. This is a very healthy church. The Holy Spirit is moving in this church. Amen? Once in a while, you guys can say amen. I, I'm, I don't mind. And uh, the truth is, you're a well-led church. There are so many solid people serving Christ in this church. Right now, where you are, you have a good reputation in the city, and it's, it's justified, it's well-deserved. Thank God every day for that, and don't feel insecure about it at all. But I want you to know not to believe your own press too much. At all times, don't just simply say, what do people think of us? But always ask, what does Jesus think of his bride in this outpost here at Wheeling? Is there something happening now in our midst that is going to weaken us over the years ahead as a church? And this again is where I say to you, listen to one another because God will not always sound the alarm through the pastors alone. His Holy Spirit moves and sometimes he raises up somebody with the courage and faith to speak up to say, it's not a crisis yet, but we need to pay attention to this because if we don't, the church may go in a direction that Jesus does not want. And when someone says that, don't shoot the messenger. It doesn't mean they're always right. 
Just because you feel a strong conviction doesn't mean you're always right, but you might be right. And so I want to encourage you to listen to one another because sometimes people prophetically will raise the alarm and send the wake-up call to a church because Jesus wants to get us before spiritual decline gets us. What am I doing on time? Here's number six. And I feel guilty because, man, this, this is a, a good way to do violence to an entire series of sermons. But I hope that somewhere along the way, Jesus is speaking to ICC as you guys think about the road ahead. Number six is this. Be faithful to the end. Unlike Sardis, the church at Philadelphia was the one church that received no rebuke at all. He only gave praise and affirmation to the church in Philadelphia. And when I was in Philadelphia as a youth pastor, I enjoyed preaching from this text. Everybody cheered when I said that. Even though they realized they didn't realize it wasn't their Philadelphia. That was a seriously pro- problematic Philadelphia. But this is a church that doesn't receive any rebuke. And here's what he says to this church. You guys are in really great shape. I'm very pleased with you. I see all your suffering and I know your deeds. And what he says is, to them is, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have very little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, I know what it means to keep my word, but what does it mean to keep someone else's word? Because what he says is, you haven't just kept your promises, you have kept my word. What does that mean when you keep someone else's word? And I'll, just, I'll give you a little, maybe modern-day parable to help you understand what I think that means. I want you to imagine that you and an expert hiker friend went out on a trek through the wilderness. And this guy had a whole planned route for you, but you decided, I want to go and be adventurous. Let's go off the beaten trail, and let's go try another trail. And you took an unnecessary risk. You jumped off of a small ravine, and you got yourself injured so that you could no longer walk. And as a result, you had to sit down somewhere on the trail, and you couldn't go further with him. And he said to you, let me go for help. Just stay right here. You don't know this country. I do. If you wander off, you're going to get lost, and I'll never find you again. And so he says to you, stay right where you are, and I promise I'll get help, and I'll be back before tomorrow night. Now, you'll have one very long night. And I know you'll greet the sunrise with great confidence and joy, but as you sit there alone in the wilderness, and your friend's not coming back, and morning turns into afternoon, And afternoon turns into evening, and doubt and fear and worry start to creep into your heart. What would you be tempted to do? See, if it were me, the way I'm wired, by around mid-afternoon, I would start to say to myself, this fool is not coming back. I just don't think he's going to come. And my leg is getting worse, and I'm not going to sit out here and become coyote food. So I'm going to start hobbling and crawling my way back the best way I know how. I'm not just going to sit here helpless. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. But you understand in this situation that to take it in your own hands is very risky because you don't know where you're going. And to keep someone else's word means you trust their promises even when doubt creeps in. To keep someone else's word means... Why is he not coming? He said he would. I've asked him a hundred times, where is he? But even so, despite your doubts and your fears, to keep the word of Jesus to the end means, no matter how much you don't see him keeping that promise, 
You stand firm because he always will. See, I think a lot of people and a lot of churches stand firm until the 11th hour. But what he says is that crown of life, that honor goes to the church that remains all the way to the end. Now I want to encourage you, ICC, because there will, there will come times in the future where you surely believe that this is what God wanted you to do. But the result is not happening. The response isn't coming. We've been there a number of times. I worried that my leadership was going to erode in the church because I was so convinced the Lord told us to go there. Our elders joined together and said, this is what the Lord wants. But as we went that way, nothing was happening. And on a number of occasions, I confess in honesty, we abandoned ship because we worried and we doubted. And I want to encourage you, if the Lord convicts you of something, stay the course. If He promises you something, stay the course. Keep His word to the end. Should I just skip the last one? I think we should, can we bring this thing down for landing? It's uh, 11.01 already. Yeah. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we just end there on a high note? Because the last one is the lukewarm water he spit out. I... <laughs> it, it, there's something to learn there, but let, let's, just, uh, let's just end it there. I remember our 10th anniversary. And uh, if I could be honest, that 10th anniversary and the prayer and the discussions that happened at that point were really the turning point for us as a church. That was the time when we were ready to make some changes that could have grown the size of our church huge. I was being invited to do certain things that would have put us very much in the public eye. We would have become fairly well-known throughout Chicagoland. I would have had a huge platform from which to tell people. In fact, some of those offering me these opportunities said, do you realize if you're on the radio, if you're on this or that, people will come to your church in multitudes. And it was at that point that we gathered together and sought the Lord in prayer. And what we really sensed that God was saying to us was, I have no interest in you becoming the largest church in Chicago. But I'm very concerned for you to become the most spirit-filled, healthiest church in Chicago. And I think we are a long ways from getting there. But that year, in our 10th year, was when we got clarity on what mattered most, what we are aiming for. We're not close to being there yet, but I don't think we're confused about what Jesus wants from our church. And I want to encourage you at this incredible, important juncture in your life as a church to rally together and seek the heart of Jesus. Invite His Holy Spirit to guide you and say, Lord, we could do a lot of things with this church now. All six chambers of the gun are loaded now. When we shoot, we're going to hit something. What should we aim at? What should we be about? What will success mean for ICC in the next 10 years? What will please your heart the most? And it's our prayer as we rally with you and celebrate with you that God would lead you down a path of making Christ happy with this church. That what you do as a church will always be what pleases the heart of Jesus and not what impresses the minds and hearts of men. 
And I believe if you go that route, God will add to this church so many other things the world seeks after. I want to invite you to pause with me and just bow your head in prayer. Very often, when a sermon ends at church and we have the prayer response, it's a very personal, individualized prayer time where I think, what does this mean to me? But this morning, I want to ask you as a part of this church family to pray, God, what does this mean for us as a church? Do you understand that where God takes the leadership is going to affect all of your lives very deeply? Church is not just a Sunday thing for you. We heard that on the video. This church is a very big part of all of your lives. And over the times ahead, it's going to become an even more important part of your lives. I think it's important we pray now that God will take ICC in a 10-year mark and clearly and powerfully direct your steps as a church for the next 10 years and beyond. That he will, through his Holy Spirit, convict the hearts of the leaders to go where Jesus is taking this church. That 10 years from now, looking back, you will know that you've gone where he was taking you and not where you wanted to go. It matters that that's what happens here. So let's pray for the whole church that Jesus would direct you where he wants you to go as a body. Let's just pray that together for a moment and then the praise team will lead us into some closing songs.